Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, open it to Isaiah chapter 53. If you don't own a Bible, as always, you're welcome to use one of the ones in the rack in front of you. You're welcome to keep that if you don't own a Bible, and you can find Isaiah 53, and the page number is listed there on the screen. We'll work through this beautiful chapter. As you're finding that, let me mention, let me just say thank you to Pastor Sidor and Sister Lillian for being here. When, when, uh, when we are around them, I feel like that scripture in Acts where it says that, that they knew that the followers of Jesus, the apostles had been with Jesus, and I just get that feeling when I am around them. We are so grateful for our partnership in the gospel with you. We love you, and we're grateful that in God's providence, he has put our our congregations together, and that we are partners in the gospel for the glory of God. We're so grateful for you. As you're finding Isaiah chapter 53, um, the Puritans, who I am very fond of, called this pulpit the sacred desk. And they called it that because they felt and they rightly uh, had this conviction that what should ha- the work that should happen here is the Lord's work. That the man of God who is tasked with delivering God's word should tremble under the power and the majesty of God's word and he should be about the Lord's business and he shouldn't get up and tell stories about his dogs or he shouldn't read you know, Aesop's fables or anything. He should tell the people what God has done, the glorious good news of Jesus. This is where the Lord's work happens. Having said that, I do, I do feel compelled <laughs> because I think it would be a distraction to you if I didn't just make a public comment <laughs> that I am glad to announce that our 14-year national nightmare is over. And Army has finally beat Navy. <laughs> Pastor Sido, we're talking about a silly little football game that on the grand scale of things means nothing but has made my soul um, convictingly happy. I don't know why. <laughs> I feel bad about this idol that has been exposed. Well, we're, we're going to work through Isaiah 53. It's one of the mountain peaks of Scripture And as we've been saying through this brief series in Isaiah, as we're preparing for Romans at the beginning of the year, that in this Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah, it's really all about Jesus. And we're taking a few chapters in Isaiah, and we are wanting to see Jesus more clearly. Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Christ was born in a manger when God became flesh. And it is pointing us to the glory of Christ. And Isaiah 53 is one of these, it's one of the mountain peaks of Scripture. And it is a a chapter about a suffering servant that Isaiah is prophetically speaking of that we know now with the benefit of history and perspective, looking back on Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we know points directly to the work of Christ. We're going to look at three truths that I think we can see from the suffering servant as we work through the chapter. Let me pray first, and then 
we will read through it. Father, thank you for the, for the sacred desk, for the great privilege to gather around your word to extol the beauty of Christ. Lord, thank you for Pastor Sidor and Sister Lillian and their tireless work for their people in Haiti. Thank you that even though they were living here in the United States with a successful business, that years ago when the earthquake struck, they, they went back to their home country to pour their lives in to the church there and the people there. Thank you that you have knit our hearts together and that we are partnering together for the only thing that really matters, the eternal souls of people. And Lord, thank you for this beautiful chapter in the Old Testament that points us to Christ. And thank you that in your providence you caused us to be born in this day and age. May we know that you have a purpose for us here and now May we as your people see the suffering servant, Christ the King, the Almighty One who humbled himself and bore our punishment on the cross. May Christians in this room be encouraged and exhorted and convicted and spurred on to love and good deeds. And may my friends that are gathered here this morning that are not yet trusting in Jesus, would you do what only you can do and may you give them a heart that can believe and eyes that would be opened and ears that can hear the glorious good news of Jesus and would you give them the gift of faith and repentance so they can turn away from trusting in themselves and put their hope in the only one who can do anything for them, Jesus. Or would you do this for your glory and the joy of your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Isaiah chapter 53, remembering that the first half of Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, were words of judgment, where God was telling his people that if you continue in your sin, I will judge you. I will cause a foreign army to come and invade and take you away into captivity. That's exactly what happened. And then verses, or chapters 40 through 66 was words of hope after the judgment had come, meaning although you've been judged and although you are in captivity, I will not leave you. I will come and I will bring salvation for you. And this salvation ultimately will be realized through this suffering servant that we will read about. Isaiah 53, verse, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Let's pause there and look at the first truth that I want us to see in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant who we know is Jesus. And it is this. The first truth is that the suffering servant was unspectacular and rejected. The suffering servant was unspectacular and rejected. Now, most of us in this room are, are Americans, not all of us, obviously, but most of us as Americans, I think, are prone to this, this sort of culture of power and authority, and 
when we come to the Bible and when we come to Jesus, we often will project our views of what it means to be mighty on Christ. And we often dwell on the portion of the biblical truth that describes Jesus, which is very true, but we often dwell singularly on the power and the glory and the majesty of Jesus, which is absolutely biblical. But when we do that to the exclusion of the humility, and in this picture that we read here in Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3, the unspectacular nature of Jesus' incarnation and in fact, the fact that he was rejected by most of the people, we, if we don't see that as well, we, we miss out on the beautiful biblical truth of who Jesus is in all of his glory. As Americans, we like a winner. That's why I was a kid. I grew up inland of San Diego, and even though I was a Charger fan growing up, um, I kind of had like a second team, the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 1970s. Why did I like the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 1970s? Because they were winners, man. <laughs> they were winning everything. Plus, I heard that Franco Harris, who was their running back, was half Italian. And I was like, man, I'm in. Franco. Anyway, all right, whatever. The disciples were looking for a winner, too. Listen to this exchange between Jesus and two of his disciples, James and John, in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10, starting verse 35. It says, in James and John... The sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, listen to this now, Get up, just take this in. Teacher, speaking to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, isn't it just a grace that at that moment the Lord of all creation doesn't just, just cause him to disintegrate? Can you Jesus is he's like, Oh, really now, boys, what is that? <laughs> and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, Jesus is saying that that the The picture of his glory is certainly part of it, but there is a humility, an unspectacularness that he would be rejected that the disciples at this point were not able to see. James and John ultimately were saying to Jesus and saying to themselves that we like a powerful Christ because a powerful Christ can do stuff for us. And that causes us, I think, to miss this picture of the unspectacular suffering servant. But Jesus completely dismantles that paradigm here in this passage and then in the Gospels. He reigns not by overpowering, but by serving. He is exalted through suffering. Look at how Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3 describes him. It says that he had no form or majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. And just in in the back of your mind, picture all of the paintings and portraits that you've seen of Jesus. Doesn't he look like uh, like one of the Bee Gees from the, or like a like a really good looking European soccer player? He's got that beautiful olive skin, blue eyes, of course, I mean, because Jewish people had blue eyes back. I mean, what? what? Long flowing hair. 
But look at this biblical account of Jesus. There was no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So as we consider the suffering servant, as we consider the glory of the incarnate God and the risen king, Let us not miss the unspectacular nature of Jesus' condescension. What's the word I'm looking for? Condescension. Thank you, Paul. I was about to say condensation, which is not (laughs) the word I was looking for. I just instinctively knew it before it came out. Let us look at the, the humility of Jesus. A few thoughts and implications of this great truth. We should be wary of the shallowness of religious respectability. What do I I mean by that? I think that in America, I think this is becoming less of the case, but I think it's still to some degree uh, at work in, especially maybe our region, I think it's less because I think I think that one of the things that's happening in our culture is a, is a hostility to faithful biblical Christianity. So I think that the lines are being more clearly drawn, and I actually think that's a good thing. But one thing that we should be wary of is the desire that we often have for religious respectability. And what do I mean by that? Meaning that we, we think that people should respect us merely because we have been maybe the dominant church or dominant whatever for decades or centuries. Let's remember that we are worshiping a suffering servant who was esteemed not. And to the degree that we act offended or shocked that the culture hates us, we miss this great truth and we undermine the witness of the gospel that we are serving a suffering servant, a convicted criminal of the state. The second thing that we should be, I think, aware of as we... As we apply this to our own hearts, is that we we need to be weaned off of everything always having to be awesome. <laughs> Don't we just? Jesus is awesome, yes, but he was also ordinary and unspectacular. Does every time we read our Bibles have to be amazing? Does every song or sermon or Bible study, I hope not, have to be amazing? We need to be careful that we are not people who are addicted to the cultural drug of ever-increasing experientialism. In other words, everything always has to be better the next time we do it. The Super Bowl halftime show has to be better than it was last time. right? Everything has to be more awesome. Everything has to be the best. I mean, you guys have even heard preachers that say that Romans 8 is the best chapter in the Bible. (laughs) That is an unsustainable trajectory spiritually. Instead, I think this passage calls us, as we see Jesus in all of his glory and humility, instead we should embrace the ordinary, unspectacular, plodding life just as Jesus did, and if we are to follow him faithfully, we should, in fact, we must embrace this aspect of our king, Jesus. Life is mostly made up of plodding, plodding. Just 
faithfully living out sort of in an unspectacular way the glory of Christ, showing that Jesus in his true biblical form is preferable to ever-increasing awesomeness. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Verse 4, some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Surely he has borne our griefs. Think about this. This was written some 700 years before Jesus was born prophetically about Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Does that sound familiar? Peter picks that up in the verse that Will read at the beginning, that by his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, verse 6, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Speaking, I think, prophetically of how Jesus was on the cross and he could have called ten thousands of angels, but he took the punishment that he did not deserve in silence, in humility for us. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That was, that was fulfilled with Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man that came and uh, gave this, this, this tomb for Jesus to be buried in. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, Jesus died not for his own sin. He was perfect in all his ways, but he died as a substitute, a perfect substitute for others. And this brings us to our second truth about the suffering servant. And it is that the suffering servant bore the punishment of his people. Now, I, I know that if you've been around Crosspoint for some time, you, you, you hopefully know that that is the case. But I want us to, to look deeper into this truth and see, see this, this beautiful truth for all of its glory in all of the Bible. In many ways, much of the Old Testament is shouting out this question. In fact, much of the Bible is shouting out this question. And that question is, how is a holy God going to have fellowship with sinful people? So, so let's back up. God has created everything good. Not just good, but very good. He's created all that is, all that exists out of nothing. And he creates mankind in his image to be his stewards over all of creation. But mankind, Adam and Eve, our first parents, who we are all descended from, they rebel against God and sin in the garden. Now that, has, that brings up a whole host of questions. God's not reacting to their sin. He knew providentially that it would happen. We know this because we read later in the Bible that God before the foundations of the earth determined to send his son to be the lamb that was slain. That clues us into the fact that the fall in Genesis 3 is not something that God is reacting 
reacting to or that snuck up on him, but he planned for it. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Brad, I see that, but that brings up all sorts of questions like what is God's relationship to evil and sin, that he would be over it and, in fact, planning for it, knowing it would happen, but yet not being connected to it. How does that work? I know. I have the same questions. (laughs) And we look at those beautiful truths in the Bible, and we're humbled by them, and... And sometimes we just have to just close our mouths and wonder at a glorious God. But God has done this. He has created mankind. Mankind has fallen. And now the rest of the story of the Bible is God setting out on a rescue mission, a love story to get back into fellowship with a great multitude of people that he will save from every tribe and tongue and nation. So God has created everything. That creation, mankind, has fallen. And God has said that I will redeem a great multitude of those fallen so that they can be back in relationship with me. But if you're, if you're thinking about it, the great question that the Bible is screaming out is, how can a holy God be in fellowship with sinful people who by their sin have made it impossible for them to ever be back in his presence. Because God in his holiness and righteousness and glory and beauty cannot abide with rebellion and sin. In fact, that's why Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. So the question, the question of the Old Testament, the question of the Bible is how is God going to do this? In fact, God has a conversation with Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Listen to this. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And it says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen to the beginning of verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands... Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Do you see what's going on there? That's a, that, that second, that, that first part of verse 7 is a kind of riddle that God will, he will forgive sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. But how will he forgive sin if he's not going to clear the guilty? Because the guilty can't do anything to make themselves right with God. So do you see embedded in that little conversation between God and Moses is this riddle, this problem that we see solved in Jesus. God will forgive sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And the problem is the, the, the answer to that riddle is not that the guilt, guilty eventually work themselves out to a place where they can be forgiven. So what's the answer? The answer is the suffering servant who bears the punishment of his people. But before we get to that, let, let's just pause and let's just make sure we understand this because we are Americans, most of us, and we think we are awesome. And let's just make sure we understand the doctrine, the truth, the biblical reality of sin and its implications. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, it says, oh my gosh, I tried to read it, but I can't. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the result of the fall. Look what the prophet says, Jeremiah, hundreds of years later, commenting on the state of humanity before God intervenes with the suffering servant. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Go to the New Testament. You say, oh, Brad, that was in the Old Testament. We've progressed since then. Well, let's look at the New Testament, Romans 8, verse 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's Paul speaking to the Roman church. And when he uses that phrase, the mind that is set on the flesh, he's just really talking about the sinful state of man. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So let's get back to the the problem of the Old Testament. Holy God, sinful people, and God will reconcile himself with a sinful people. How will he do it? Especially when these sinful people are unable to reconcile themselves. Before we get to the answer to that, Let's just, take in, let's just take in some implications about, about our nature in, in its state. We, we, the, the theologians in, in the history of the church have called this doctrine, this truth that we see in the scriptures about the state of mankind before God intervenes, as that we are totally, completely depraved. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It means that every part of our human faculties, our body, which is breaking down, and man, I feel that. I mean, we got a bunch of young uh, lieutenants in here and young soldiers, and you guys get up in the morning and run and everything. Just wait. Give me about 25 years, and you will wake up in the morning, and you will make snap, crackle, pop noises. (laughs) And your first thought will be, when can I go back to bed? Our bodies, (laughs) somebody's excited down here. Our bodies fall apart. But not only do our bodies fall apart, our souls just by their nature, are separated from God, and they are unable to do anything right with God. We are totally incapable, unable to do anything right before God. A few implications of this before we get on to the solution of this great problem. This explains so much, doesn't it? It explains so much. It's why life, even at its best, is a struggle. I'm sometimes shocked at how, and Jennifer, you don't need to really, you don't need to chime in here with any amens, but I am shocked at how quickly my mood can fluctuate. Easy, don't, just, just, just for the sake of the rest of the sermon, you don't need to say anything. I mean, one minute everything will seem to be going well, your heart will be clear, and then something happens and you're just, is it just me? Is this a safe place or am I the only spiritually schizophrenic person in the room? Okay, thank you very much. And this, this, this truth explains it because even though I have been, I think, made right and regenerated by God and I'm trusting in Him and God has made me new, we still deal with the vestiges of the fall. We are fallen People. It explains why life can be such a struggle. 
The second thing that it should do is it should, it should just radically humble us, right? There is no, there should be no category for arrogant, prideful Christians. They're, they're just, that category shouldn't exist in a gospel preaching church. There, there shouldn't be any category for impatience with one another. And we should be on the lookout to stamp it out every chance we get. Listen to what Richard Sibbs, I read from his book, The Bruised Reed, uh, a week or two ago, last week I think it was, listen to what he says about, about understanding this, this idea that we are all in need of grace, that we are all fallen, and what it should produce in us. He says this, the Holy Ghost, meaning the Holy Spirit, is content, I love this, to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. I've read this before and I pointed out to you that that is all y'all and me, right? That's us. I grew up in this church, it was kind of one of these like... Um, gospel preaching churches and every now and again the pastor would like in the middle you've seen this maybe on the more charismatic churches he'd say you know after he'd make a really good point he said touch three people and tell them you know touch three people and tell them you're blessed uh, you know just as a kind of a, well touch three people and tell them you're a smoky offensive soul right <laughs> and then invite them to lunch okay the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful dispositions. We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. That means that the doctrine of sin and the fall and what it has done to all of us should level the playing field. All of us have inherent sin. All of us have this sin native to us. Even if we have been renewed by Christ, we're still battling against it. And so that should humble us as we look at one another. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards, just one more, i got to press in on this. Jonathan Edwards in his 70 Daily Resolutions, the greatest American theologian, who was the pastor in New England back in the 1700s behind the Great Awakening in America in, in uh, uh, the 1700s, wrote 70 daily resolutions when he was in his early 20s, right? So all of you young men that are wasting your life away on video games and stupid stuff, our boy Johnny Ed was cranking out 70 daily resolutions that have stood the test of time. And, I mean, you're highest score on your little video game ain't standing the test of time. Some other little knucklehead's going to break that next week. So get a pen and paper and start writing some stuff down about what you want God to do in your life. All right. I'm getting, I'm getting amped up, man. All right. Number eight. He wrote this. Listen to this. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others and to let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Man, when we see the, the reality and the severity and the depth and the humbling nature of our fallenness, what it should produce in us in a horizontal way is deep compassion for one another. And when a group of people see the glory of God and the reality of their inability apart from him, it should produce in them a tenderness and gentleness towards one another, shouldn't it? Oh, that God would produce in us a merciful disposition towards smoky and offensive souls. 
like all of us. So then back to the suffering servant. What's God's solution? We see it here. We are unable. And so he sends the suffering servant. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, the righteous for the unrighteous, the substitute of Christ on the cross. That is how the suffering servant bears the punishment of his people. Remember what it said about this suffering servant, prophetically about Jesus. It said that he had no violence in him. There was nothing in his mouth that was contrary to God. He was completely perfect. And so listen to this. This is the gospel. God sent his son Jesus, the eternal son of God, always with him to come and be a man, live a life of perfection where all of us, Adam and Eve and all of their children, that's us, where all of us have disobeyed God in some way or another and have been separated from God in our sin. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, then laid down that fully human yet fully God perfection on the cross to absorb the wrath of a just and holy God who could not abide with sinners because he's holy. And because Jesus is not just a man, but because he is the eternally holy son of God, he has enough holiness to satisfy the wrath of God for all the sins of all the people that would ever trust in him. And on the cross, what's happening is God the son is appeasing the glory and the wrath of God the father and extinguishing it and removing it and taking it away. And then... He doesn't just take away sin, the suffering servant, because he's righteous, eternally righteous, in fact, then gives, imputes, transfers his righteousness to all those that he has made alive and given faith to so that by the faith that even he has given them and then they return it back to him with hope in him, he then gives them, imputes them, transfers to them his righteousness. So now the holy God, when he looks down on sinful men who put their hope in Jesus, he doesn't see their sin. He sees the righteousness of the perfect suffering servant and when you when you see that friends it 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 makes you it should make you want to worship God for all of his glory in sending the suffering servant and the spectacular grace of the gospel in fact Come on, let's just pause for a second and just, you have to marvel at the gospel. In fact, sometimes I, I'll, I'll think about the gospel and I'll, I'll start giggling. It's so good. It's so good. God could have smoked us all, man. But he humbles himself. The all-powerful God of the universe humbles himself in patience and forbearance for centuries and come and sends his son Jesus who Colossians 1 that Kwame read for us early says is the one who created all things. So the creator lets the creation reject him and despise him and crucify him to bear the sin that he is being committed against him so that he would rise again. I mean, come on. Who of us, if we had power, would treat people like that? 
But God does it. And then, and then he doesn't say, I've done this so that if you will meet me halfway, I'll meet you halfway and we'll work out a deal called grace. No, he says that while we were dead in our sins, he makes us alive. So he walks to the tombs and the graveyards of our spiritual wickedness as we are trapped in our sins, not because we are seeking God, but because he's seeking us and he walks up to our dead hearts that are unable, as we read in Romans 8, and he says to us, get up from your spiritual grave and follow me. And when we do that, we realize we have nothing to do. We can't look at our hands and say, you know what? I'm better than that chump down the street. God picked me on his team because I got some gift. So let's just take a little rabbit trail. Let's stop looking at people who don't know Jesus, who are gifted and say, oh, God could really use them. If God just had that person's gifts, oh, stop that. God doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our charisma. He doesn't need our smarts. He doesn't need anything. He saves dead people for his glory. And he makes them alive. And when we see that truly, it should cause us to worship. And it's making me right now just want to throw some punches and shadow box. It would be appropriate for you every now and again to say amen. And I end with this. This is, oh, this is so encouraging. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 53, last truth. Yet, yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the Father's will to crush the Son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Look again at verse 10 at the beginning there. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Maybe some of you are reading a translation that says, it, was the, it pleased God to crush him. And that brings us to our, our final truth here, is that the suffering servant was crushed by the will of God. God is not reacting to anything that has happened in the history of creation. We are always reacting. I often feel like I'm always reacting to things far more than I am proactively engaging in things. The world is uncertain. The markets may crash. The loved one may get a terrible disease. Children may stray. And it can make us feel powerless and at times hopeless. And this produces anxiety in, in us. What if something terrible happens? What will life look like then? How will I get through this? This really hit me, hit home to me a couple years when my oldest son got his driver's license. And he's, I mean, he's a good driver. He's a very capable kid. But I remember when he first got his license, if he was ever away from the house, having driven somewhere, 
and he would call me. I would see his name on my cell phone, and I would answer it. What? What's the matter? Is everything okay? <laughs> Just, and he'd be like, Dad, I'm at Bennett's house. Can I stay for a little bit longer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just had to get over this fear that I had because I was completely out of control because he, something might have happened. He might be on a, in a ditch somewhere in the side of the road, right? But notice what's happening here with human sin. God hasn't picked up the phone in Genesis 3 and heard from the Holy Spirit that Adam and Eve disobeyed him. And oh my goodness, now what are we going to do? God is completely in control before the cross even happens it says that it's the will of God to crush him before the garden and the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 even happens we read later on in the Bible where it says that God has put Jesus forward as the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth Friends, when we stare at that truth and the utter glory of the eternal plan of God to create a world that he knew would fall so that he would save a great multitude of people out of that fall for his glory, we stand in wonder and that can put steel in our spines so that we can face an uncertain future because we know God has it all under control for his glory. And this doesn't mean that things are going to go well for us. It may mean that we may be Egyptian Christians being martyred by ISIS. But then that tunes our heart into another great truth that there must be something better than these 80 years. What are the implications for this? And we end with this. Friends, the world is confusing and scary and the future is uncertain to us, but not to God. He can be trusted. If he has ordained and ordered and planned for the greatest tragedy of all, the crucifixion of his son, to bring about the greatest good of all, the redemption of his people, then it stands to reason that he can order and ordain our lives in such a way that it brings about our greatest good. This is the truth of Romans 8.28. He works all things together. For the good of those that he has called according to his purpose. I like to read from my devotions old historic confessions of faith. The one that I'm reading currently is the Heidelberg Catechism. It was a great document of the Protestant Reformation written in 1563. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism because it was compiled and primarily written in Heidelberg, Germany. So if you've ever been in the military and you've been to Heidelberg, Germany, you were in hallowed ground. And this is what question number one says in the Heidelberg Catechism. And catechism is just a word that means it's a teaching mechanism where the church for centuries would just ask questions and answer it to help instruct one another in the, the beauty of the truth of the Bible. Question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the, thy only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, and not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me 
that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that in all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. In other words, nothing is happening that is outside of God's control. Let's skip ahead to question number 27. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? Listen to this answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So when we stare at this truth that God determined to create a creation that would fall so that he would redeem a great host of that creation out of the fall to bring glory to his name. And before he even created that creation, he determined to put his son forward and that it was his will to crush his son. In fact, he took pleasure in doing that because he knew the great reward that it would bring when we stare into that God who is in that kind of control. It frees us. It should free us from an uncertain future. And if this is the case, We are free to give our lives away to something greater than self-preservation, right? This this truth is what missionaries stare at when when they give their lives away to take the gospel to hostile lands. This is what Jim Elliott saw and observed when he gave his life away on a beach in Ecuador in the 1950s to take the gospel to a a ravaging, hostile tribe that ultimately took his life and several of his fellow missionaries. This is the truth that frees us from our addiction to these 80 years. And this isn't just a truth that calls and compels Christians to give their lives away to dangerous things. This beautiful truth, when we see it, it it, 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 it unleashes our hands from the tyranny of this life so that we can give our lives away in practical ways, even as we live in our unspectacular, ordinary ways. It frees us from making ourselves the center of the universe so that we would give our reputations, our goods, our treasures, our time, and our talents away to the only thing that truly matters, more people seeing the beauty of the suffering servant who was crushed for all those who would trust in him by the will of God who is sovereign over all things. This, is, this very truth is the truth that Pastor Sidor and Lillian see and give their lives away to their people in Haiti. This is the truth that has compelled young couples in this church to give their lives away, to take the gospel to foreign lands where there are a minuscule amount of Christians. This is the truth that causes people in this church to prioritize others over themselves. This is the truth that causes families to want to foster and adopt babies. This is the truth that causes Christians to die a thousand daily deaths to their own inclinations so that they might 
present Christ to an onlooking world. This is why we gather. This is the truth of the incarnation. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is the only thing that really matters. That the glory of God would be clearly seen to an onlooking world through the humble birth, death, and resurrection of his son and has made us alive by it so that we can be people who find our joy in proclaiming that truth giving our lives away to the glory of the gospel as we worship this suffering servant. Let's pray. Father, these truths are monumental. May we see them clearly. May people that are in this room that previously have not yet trusted in Jesus, may you give them a heart to believe and see this suffering servant, the risen King Jesus. May they turn from trusting in themselves. May they realize that they are trapped in their inability which is the human condition before we see you truly for who you are and may you reveal to them their complete inability to do anything in and of themselves to make themselves right with a holy God and may that finally for the first time force them to look away from themselves and to you and your son and friend if that is you you don't need to go through a set of procedures or steps you need to look away from yourself and put your hope in Jesus and say I am fallen Jesus is holy he died he rose again I don't understand it all but I want to put my hope in him and if that is you friend don't leave this room don't leave this building today without talking to somebody that you know to be a Christian that can help you begin trusting in Jesus and not yourself Father, would you do that? Would you give that? And then for the rest of us, Lord, would you stir our affections so that we would worship the suffering servant, the risen victorious king more faithfully today and give our lives away for him. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.